Welcome to Parents on Pitches podcast. My name is Damien and today we are covering Event Horizon. Bill 300 this morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where's she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening outer door. It came back abandoned. Any crew? Negative. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back alone. Captain Miller! I've got some problems here! This ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who knows where it's been and what it's brought back with it. Did you hear that? The ship is reacting to us, and the reactions are getting stronger. What are you telling me? That this ship is alive? I have such wonderful things to show you. Oh, my God. It knows my secrets. (laughs) It knows my fears. Vacate. I want off this ship. I can't leave. She won't let you. God help us. This film was made in 1997 and stars Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, Kathleen Quinlan, Jolie Richardson. Richard T. Jones, Jack Noseworthy, and Jason Isaacs, and Sean Pertwee, amongst others. In addition to this, it was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Yes, that guy. The guy who did uh, or started and directed some of the Resident Evil franchise. He also did another film with uh, Sean Pertwee called Soldier, which we'll probably talk about because I kind of enjoyed Soldier, albeit it's not very good. And um, in addition... To all of this, he also made some right clunkers. So he did, uh, this is Paul W.S. Anderson. He's also directed um, a Three Musketeers reboot, which I don't think was very good. And he did Monster Hunter most recently, which got absolutely panned. But full disclosure, I don't play Monster Hunter. It's another one of these that's based on a video game. And I uh, I kind of enjoyed it. It was a, a very straight-laced uh, 
not really much going on kind of a movie, i.e. it wasn't overly complex. I don't know how true to form it is or, or how closely it followed the, the narrative of the video game. Probably not very much, given how much he didn't follow the narrative of Resident Evil. But then again, if you've ever looked into the storyline, like the full cohesive storyline from Resident Evil Zero and beyond, um, it's not exactly a straight line. That game or that franchise goes all over the place. So, you know what? Fair play. You don't necessarily have to stick to the source material in order to get something to be a success. And Resident Evil was successful, but he hasn't really been able to do anything since, at least not to the same level. And in my opinion, this is one of his absolute best films. So everything's kind of gone downhill after Event Horizon in terms of quality. Um, I'm not sure what sets this apart from, from everything else or his, you know, his thinking, his approach to everything else. And unfortunately, Paul W.S. Anderson has said that he's got no interest of coming back to the universe of Event Horizon, which is a shame because a sequel to this would be really cool. Not sure how you do it because it works really nicely as a, a closed film. But, you know, spoilers for the very ending, they do kind of leave it open for uh, a sequel. Uh, it, they don't completely or neatly wrap it up, uh, but it does also work as a good standalone film. Now, as many of you have heard me say before, I don't like it when you jump into a film and it uses text to catch you up. I think it's quite lazy, but unfortunately, this film starts exactly that way. Um, it comes up on screen and it after the credits have rolled, um, it informs you what's going on by just putting text up on screen. Now, Back in 1997, this was a little bit more forgivable. And with this kind of a budget film as well, it's not a high budget film. They didn't have a lot of time, didn't have a lot of money. So they got to kind of cut corners where they can. And unfortunately, being able to show something is usually dependent upon what kind of a budget you got, especially when you take into account that this is a sci-fi. Uh, everything is going to be expensive because you have to build all the sets. You can't you know, go into outer space and film in location, or at least somebody needs to tell that to Tom Cruise. But um, yeah, so it starts with 2040, deep space research vessel Event Horizon launched to explore boundaries of the solar system. She disappears without trace beyond the eighth planet Neptune. It is the worst space disaster on record. So it does set up a few things, you know, we are now space um, faring species. We've been out into space. If it's the worst disaster on record, then there must have been like other things in this universe that have happened um, in terms of space exploration, whether it's just re referring to uh, what we have in our own timeline, our own history, you know, going to the moon and all that jazz, or um, whether it's trying to set up a slightly bigger universe without actually showing that universe, because, you know, it money, man, <laughs> if you haven't got it, you can't use it. So a little bit about, um, so I suppose, the background of this, it's... Uh, so many people have tried to get this on, on Blu-ray. So many people have been wanting to see like a, uh, an HD version or something that's a lot more pristine. And that exists. But unfortunately, what doesn't seem to exist, or at least not until very recently, is a full length feature. This film is really short. It comes in at, including credits, a mere like 130, uh, excuse me, a mere hour and a half, not 130 minutes. That would be epic. Um, it, it's a very precise, very uh, quickly cut, and it doesn't linger on anything too long, which is really impressive when you bear in mind that this film builds great atmosphere. 
Now, it is 1997, and they do use a little bit of CGI, which is a little bit dodgy. Okay, so you got to get past that. Thankfully, they use the CGI very sparingly. Um, there's shots at the beginning where you're kind of, the camera's panning around the event horizon, and there's things floating because there's no gravity on the ship, and it's like CGI coffee cups and CGI glasses and all this really weird and wonderful stuff but that's kind of all they use what i really appreciate about this film is that a lot of it is um practical a lot of it is is makeup and that goes a long way when you're trying to show something as gruesome as what this film does yes there are a couple of cgi shots that don't quite work takes you out and i think it would do better um, to kind of go over and, and polish these up. But they, you know, I don't think the studio is going to do that now. It's a, a 1997 film. Whilst it has its cult following, I don't think it's going to be like a, a massive money earner. So they're not going to put more money into this by, by you know, increasing the, the budget to to improve these shots. And it stands exactly as it is. It's absolutely fine. But you've just got to get beyond that. It is, uh, wow, where are we now? 2022? Crikey, this film's well over 20 years old now. And it still holds up because it uses, very uncharacteristically for W.S. Anderson, it uses um, atmosphere. And it does start off quite slow. It tries to build the tension, which Anderson's not really known for these days. He likes to throw you straight in and is not adverse to using CGI, albeit poor CGI. I'm thinking of the liquor in uh, in Resident Evil to um, to show you these things, even though, you know, a, a puppet or makeup would probably do better. So the 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 crew who have sent to go and explore Event Horizon, all coming together first off, and they give you a little bit of background. Event Horizon went on a mission, it was a top secret mission, and the whole point of it was to explore the possibility of faster than light travel. But as you learn, and it's even stated in the trailer, you don't actually go faster than light, or at least the technology that's on Event Horizon doesn't actually push the ship faster than light. What it does is it opens up two portals. Um, one where the ship is and one somewhere else and it folds space brings these portals together and it travels through the portals so it's literally traveling using um i suppose dimensional theory from one part of space to another part of space using portals instead of faster than light travel so that's how it gets around it and as you learn the portal doesn't actually open up to where it's supposed to go so they were just thinking you know open a portal one place open it up in another place, travel through, boom, you're on the other side of the universe, faster than light travel achieved. But what it actually does is ends up opening up a portal to somewhere completely unknown. And this is where they start to really neatly build the tension. It's like, okay, where did this ship go? How has it come back? Where's the crew? And so the, uh, the crew, led by Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Sam Neill, who's the scientist that's going along, he's the man who invented the... The, uh, alt, uh, the dimensional drive, they go uh, onto the ship and they investigate this ship. Now, what you've got to kind of bear in mind is that W.S. Anderson has been accused many, many times of just kind of ripping off other films and borrowing from other films, not to the point where it's like, oh, this has been influenced by something. It's like, no, no, he has taken this, lifted it straight out of another film and just put it in his. It's like not exactly a like-for-like like reshoot of certain scenes. 
but you can tell from the aesthetics of this of, of event horizon that they're going very much for an alien look so the ship um that they're they're on at the moment the uh the crew they're going into stasis and it's all very very much like uh the original ship from alien like you could you could almost think well they've just taken the same set they've adjusted it slightly so the stasis tubes instead of being laying flat they're up on the walls and it's all very light it's very old school it's not um you know touch screen panels and all that jazz it's very much older technology so everything looks like what it did in the uh, was it the 70s the alien came out so it's very old school tech uh nothing that kind of harks to our day and age where we've got um well, almost holographic displays that you can use. I'm thinking like Minority Report, where you know it comes up on uh, up in front of you, and you you're not actually hitting buttons; you're hitting light. None of that at all. This is old school suits. It looks like Alien. It feels like Alien. So they're borrowing their aesthetic very much from Alien. It's all very um, sort of an old down and dirty feeling which i really like i think that aesthetic needs to make a comeback everything is too polished in sci-fi these days which is a real shame it is an absolute shame i love this older look you know you look at spaceships these days spaceships you look at rockets these days we're sending into space all of that tech looks old school compared to what you can actually buy as a consumer in terms of your iPhones, your tablets, and, and all that stuff. Like, no, we're still flicking switches, and we're still going into space using rockets and propelled by mass amounts of, uh, of fuel. It's like, we need to go back to that aesthetic. It, it, things are too clean. And I really, really appreciate that about this film. Now, going back to kind of like the lost material so people for a long time now have wanted a uh, a re-edit of this and according to some of the information that's out there paul ws anderson's initial cut of the film was 130 minutes long now it's only like 89 minutes um it was it didn't test really well for for audiences back in 19 i suppose 1996 it was released in 97 and the studio didn't like it either and so they wanted him to cut it down so significantly they thought it was too long it was too violent it was too graphic um and and he was made to to cut it so he really hacked this film to bits and you can kind of see that the pacing isn't all over the place um but some things are lingering some things are really fast the pacing is a little off and given that the cult following that this film has managed to achieve over the years everybody is wanting to see the 130 minute cut now the initial thought was that unfortunately because this was you know back in the day back in 97 this was filmed on film it wasn't digital and they stored the film in a warehouse under not very great conditions and everybody believed that the additional footage had been completely lost which means that a director's cut wasn't possible and so it's something that we may never see however in 2012 it was believed that someone was able to find a vhs a vhs tape 
that may hold all of the additional footage that never made it into the final cut. Now, 2012 is 10 years ago at this stage, which means if the studio was going to put money into it, the likelihood is, is that they would have done it already. But there is still a little bit of hope out there to see the original 130-minute cut that Paul W.S. Anderson wanted to release. And honestly, I really hope that they manage to make it because I'm one of those people. I would love to see this film in its full glory. I think they, uh, I don't think they can hurt the pacing by putting the additional footage in. Now, yes, one of the reasons why this film doesn't uh, bore the audience is because it is quite short. However, with horror films, if you can get the editing process right, and I think this is one of these that might really kind of do with it, is that you can you can extend the tension and you can build more of it by those extra few minutes adding it in. Now it depends what was cut out. If it was just all gore, then okay, you've got 130 minutes of something that's overly grotesque, and so you're going into the realms of we don't need this. But if you can add a little bit more to the characters, if you can add a little bit more to their backstories, so that when um, the the deaths finally start coming on screen, you might feel a bit more for them. And also, for those of you that are horror hounds and gore hounds, there's going to be more for you to see. So with any luck, even though it's been 10 years, um, hopefully, hopefully, there's still going to be a chance to see the 130-minute cut, which I, for one, would be very pro. Okay, so let's skip ahead a little bit. They, they find the event horizon, uh, they dock with the ship and then they go and they explore. And this is where it really starts to build atmosphere. The lights are off, the gravity's off, everything's shut down, and there's absolutely no sign of the crew. And it was a sizable crew. So it's like, where the heck are they? And as they're walking around and exploring, it's, you know, dark passageways, hallways. It's a big ship. It's an ugly looking ship. It's not the type of thing um, that you would expect uh, to be built and sent into space. It, it, it's quite a, a jagged uh, and 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 kind of grotesque looking thing in the first place. So props to the departments that brought this this vision to life and the people who built these sets. They're big, they're ugly, they're uncomfortable, they're jagged. And as they're walking around, uh, they get to the bridge and they uh, they see like a recording or they no let me get this right first off they hear the recording and then they see the recording and it's absolutely grotesque you've got the old captain with his oh man with his eyeballs that he's he's pulled out and they're in his eyes and all these horrific things that they're doing to the crew and um it's later on that you discover that there are basically bits of the crew all over the hull of the ship on the inside and so they're able to simultaneously build atmosphere by having this slow exploration of the ship matched with this really beautiful um, and horrific soundtrack, along with not really showing you all that much until certain points. And then it spikes a bit, bit of gore and then back to tension building, bit of gore, back to tension building. And this is where the film really gets into its flow because I'm assuming the budget and because of, you know, the approach that Paul W.S. Anderson actually brings to this by not showing too much. This, the, the tension is built really nicely. And this is something that I think he's kind of lost over the years. He shows too much. He's got the ability to do so, especially with the advances in CGI. And so this kind of like slow build um, tension isn't seen in his more recent films. 
and this is why Resident Evil overall isn't all that scary. Um, it, it, it's an action flick, whereas this is very much a sci-fi horror, and they really get the elements. Now, what I love about this, however, is that the cast and crew have gone on record as saying, they had no idea what was going on, didn't really understand the story, at least some of them didn't get it. But they just went along with it. And it I don't know whether it helped or hurt the film, but um, they seem to be, you know, giving a, a fantastic uh, performance from from all of them. Uh, anyway, back to the, the 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 dimensional drive. I don't know where the concept for this drive came along, but it is uh, it's horrific looking, and this is it. It's not you know it's not your Star Trek warp engine. That's nice and neat and flashy lights. No, this is a sphere, and there are these circles going around the sphere, constantly moving, all jagged, all black, until the sphere stops rotating all of the um circles around the sphere line up and it opens up a portal which is described as bending space but it's more like a portal to another dimension um and it's later on that you discover that this is basically a portal to hell the ship has been to hell and back literally and it's bought something with it and i think what they try to do quite nicely is instead of which a lot of you know horror sci-fis do these days instead of bringing back an alien or instead of making it a, a, a microbe because that's one of the easiest ways of saving money in a film if you haven't got the money for an actual alien you make it a microscopic organism that infects human beings and so your actors become the threat not this at all they haven't brought back an alien the ship is conscious which is another great way of saving money when you think about it they don't have to show an alien um it's all done with this ship being self-aware and it's showing hallucinations to the crew uh, and that's kind of what's killing them the ship won't let them leave and this is done beautifully you learn that the doctor let me find out just for a moment uh, the doctor is played by i think it's a doctor is played by kathleen quinlan and you 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 find out that her son back on earth is is in a chair he's got some kind of a disease and the ship starts showing the doctor um, visions of her son running around, which is brilliant. It's like, and it starts uh, this whole child running away from you and she's chasing him down corridors. And then because she's so captivated by this hallucination, she ends up running right off of the edge of a, a tall, I don't know, shaft of some description. She falls to her death. And this is how the ship gets you. You can't trust what you see. You can't trust what you hear. And that is far more terrifying than showing some kind of a really cheap alien because it messes with your mind. And the audience doesn't know what to trust. The audience doesn't know whether what it's looking at is reality or whether it's an hallucination that this ship is trying to show you. And it does it again. The the, the ship uses the doctor, uh, and this time Sam Neill, uh, Dr. Weir. He kind of shows him visions of his wife who, who we find out committed suicide and slowly turns Dr. Weir insane. And this is almost where it loses it so if you skip towards the end they manage to eliminate dr weir because he's gone nuts and he is attempting to 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 destroy them he is attempting to kill the crew uh so that the ship doesn't get destroyed because the the initial plan once they figure all this out is we need to blow the ship up and so the ship turns dr weir against the rest of the crew and he slowly starts to take them out um and th this is where sam neil's 
gone on record, I think, of saying, I have no idea how this happened, but it was just part of the film, so they went with it. He didn't know what was going on from one minute to the next. They managed to eject Dr. Weir into space and kill him. And somehow, unexplainable, the ship brings him back. The ship won't let Dr. Weir die. Uh, and so it leads to a really cool uh, ending where you've got Dr. Weir against uh, all the crew. Now, I'm not going to go too much into the... Um, the plot because I could have very happily sit here and give you every plot detail and go through all the bits and pieces. So let's just go through the, the film itself in terms of what makes it a bit different to everything else. It deals with atmosphere really, really well. Everything that you see on screen is low tech. It's dirty. It's jagged. It's ugly. It really sets a mood. The gore is used sparingly, but that's generally, I would imagine, due to the fact that the studio made Paul W.S. Anderson cut the film down. He wanted to show more. But when the gore is there, it is gruesome. Um, there are some things in here that if you're not into gore, it's not going to be for you. This is not the type of just thriller kind of uh, sci-fi horror. It shows some stuff and it's nasty stuff. I'm thinking of Jason Isaac's character, um, who, again, I think is, is killed by Dr. Weir. And uh, he's basically completely cut open and uh, pinned to the ceiling uh, with his innards coming out. Now, this is one of those sad things that was lost in the cut. It came to light that one of the reasons that uh, uh, DJ, or Jason Isaac's character, was killed in this manner was because he told another one of the crew, uh, and this is in the, the cut that wasn't seen, that he has this recurring fear that he's going to be operated on and he's going to be awake. And so if you you know learn these little beats, these things that are missed in the background on, on the cut that never made it, that makes his death far more poignant because that's literally what happens to him. He is kind of pinned to the ceiling in Hellraiser style with, with hooks. You know, he's, 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 he's suspended from the, the ceiling of the, the ship and he's cut open and all of his innards just kind of like fall out. You don't see any of this. You see the aftermath of this. But this would have been far more effective if the film were allowed to show these little bits and pieces as opposed to having it all cut out. And this is what I'm worried about. I think that some of this is uh, is really lost, but it's still effective. It's still a really gruesome scene for those of you who like your your, your gore. And another instance where one of the crew is um, shot out of an airlock. And again, the ship is making him do it. The ship kind of takes over his mind until he's in the airlock and then the ship lets him go. And the sheer terror of this character, who's played by... Uh, this is um, Justin, who's shot out of an airlock and he's played by Jack Noseworthy. The ship takes over his mind in the aimlessly, almost zombified walks into the airlock, locks the door, disengages the safety protocols, and there's a countdown. And then he comes to his senses, and he's absolutely terrified. And he's shot into space. In another moment, as he's shot into space, like blood starts coming from his eyes. And it's essentially explosive decompression, which, from what I understand, doesn't happen in this way. But it doesn't matter. It's a really effective uh, scene. Um, and it's just these little touches that are added to the film that make it different. It doesn't matter whether the cast and crew understood what was going on or not. Thankfully, the film holds together. And I do think that part of it is the fact that it's so short. Because it's short, you're not really left to linger on these things. It's like this happens, boom, onto the next bit. This happens onto the next bit. So one of the uh, the fears, I suppose, is that if you're given the 130 minutes instead of the 80-odd minutes that we have, 
is that you might actually start overthinking what's going on, which could completely pull the film apart. So with any luck, it will be cut in such a way, should we ever see it, that this uh, fast pace isn't slowed down to the point where you're just bored with the film, because that would be a, a crying shame. Now, before I kind of wrap up here, um, I just wanted to bring your attention to two scenes that I think work incredibly effectively. So the first one is uh, a conversation that's being had between um, Miller and DJ. So Lawrence Fishburne's character and Jason Isaac's character. When they come onto the event horizon, they hear an audio um, and it's in Latin and they try to decipher it. Now, DJ can speak Latin. Uh, why? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't really matter. And he uh, believes that he uh, has managed to translate the warning that has been left for the crew or anybody who finds the event horizon. But in a later scene, which I'm about to play for you here, you realize that it's far more insidious than you think. And I think it's these little touches that go a long, long way to building the tension of the film itself. It's like mistakes have been made and these mistakes are going to have dire and massive consequences. It also really shows how the crew is beginning to understand how the ship can get into your head. The ship knows your deepest, darkest fears. It knows what you've done in the past. So the ship is aware and the ship is able to um, discover your secrets. I closed the lifeboat hatch and I left him behind. I swore I'd never lose another man. I've known you a long time. You never told me that. That's just it, DJ. I, I never told anybody. But this ship knew about it. It knows my fears. It knows my secrets. Gets inside your head and it shows you. I wasn't going to tell you this. I've been listening to the distress signal. And I am... Um... I think I made a mistake in the translation. <sighs> Go on. I thought it said liberate me. Save me. But it's not me. It's liberate tutte me. Save yourself. And it gets worse. There. I think that says X in fairies. Save yourself from hell. And I absolutely love how the score just kind of starts to come in in the background and really adds to the tension of that scene. And it's it's one of those moments in the film where you're like, oh, this crew is absolutely effed. Um, in a maybe in a in a lesser film, more of the crew would have died. But when you watch this, you actually realize that not that many people get killed. I mean, in Alien, there's one survivor, 
all the crew gets taken out. But in this one, there's actually quite a few people left at the end, which is great when you consider how much atmosphere and how much terror the film is able to invoke in the audience using little touches like this scene. And the other scene I wanted to talk about is a bit more gruesome, obviously won't translate very well on a podcast, but um, the recording, the, the audio recording that they discovered previously in the film, they come across the video recording that shows you the fate of the previous crew and it's utterly grotesque and their initial response is we need to get the heck off of the event horizon and we need to blow this ship to smithereens which after what they've just witnessed is exactly the right thing to do but it also goes uh, a long way to putting a a point on Dr. Weir, played by Sam Neill, Dr. Weir's kind of growing insanity. Now, he's been experiencing hallucinations, and this character's been really off right up until this point. And this is the moment where you're like, yeah, Dr. Weir is, he's the bad guy. You've got to watch out for him. Um, and he He's kind of like dropped all illusion of, um, of being Dr. Weir. He is now completely crazy and will do anything to remain on this ship. Stuck! Miller? specific rescue the crew salvage what's left of the ship the crew is dead doctor your ship killed them we came here to do a job we're aborting doctor stark download the files from the event horizons computers dj i want you to get justin prepped and ready to move him back to the clark stuff i want to get from medical gotta move him in the tank no problem do it peters once you get the co2 scrubbers back into the clark take smitty with you You can't just leave her. I have no intention of leaving her, Doctor. I will take the Lewis and Clark to a safe distance, and then I will launch attack missiles at the event horizon until I'm satisfied she's vaporized. F*** this ship. Don't. Captain Miller, the bioscan just went off the scale. It looks like the core is, is draining power from the rest of the ship. Get the files. Vacate. I want off this ship. You can't leave. She won't let you. You just get your gear and get back on the Lewis and Clark, Doctor, or you'll find yourself walking home. I am home. So overall, uh, Event Horizon, not going to lie, one of my favorite sci-fi horror films. I watched it way back when. I think it was on, um, must have been on the VHS. I was way too young to go to the cinema to see this. God, in 1997, 
I was, I just started secondary school. I was completely unaware of this. And I think it absolutely terrified me because I didn't know exactly what it was I was getting myself into. It's one of those, much like Predator, where someone was like, oh, you'll really like this. It's it's uh, it's a good sci-fi film. And I watched it and I was terrified. I had nightmares for weeks after watching this film. It's just so effective. So would I recommend it? Yes, but there are some caveats. You have to enjoy science fiction and horror. You don't want to be turned off by gore. If you're not into that sort of thing, then no, you do not want to watch this. If you scare easily and you don't like to be scared, then no, don't watch this. This film is, what, 20 plus years old. Is it a 25-year-old film now? Yeah. This film is 25 years old. And even by today's standards, it is terrifying if you've never seen it before. So with those caveats in mind, if that is the type of thing that you enjoy, then I absolutely 100% recommend this. This is something you have to watch if this is your cup of tea. Otherwise, no, avoid. What it does, it does extremely effectively. It is a terrifying science fiction horror film, and it is brilliantly acted. I mean, look at the cast. Back in 1997, even by today's standards, Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, Jason Isaacs, you've got Jolie Richardson and Richard. I mean, just my God, the talent in here is amazing. How they got this together, I, I will never know. I don't think W.S. Anderson will be able to do this today. I'm not going to lie um, because he's known for making schlock. But back in 97, this was outstanding. So 100% go and watch this film. Ladies and gents, thank you so much for listening along. I've been Damien, and we will catch you next time on Parents on Pictures podcast.